If you're like me, you're probably conservative with your finances. After all, it's not how much money you make, but how much money you keep. Personally, I love this quote from rich dad Robert Kiyosaki and think it's never been more important. Because with inflation at a record high of 8.6% and the economy heading for a recession, we're losing money whether we invest it in stocks or keep it in the bank. So what should you do? Well, experts at Morgan Stanley suggest putting money into safer alternative assets like high-end art. Why art? Well, the value of works by legends like Picasso and Warhol has a near zero correlation with stocks, meaning art can help protect your investment portfolio from risks. Plus, it can still drastically increase in value despite the chaos in the world. For instance, the art investing platform Masterworks handed investors over 30% net returns from four separate paintings since 2019. Of course, past performance doesn't guarantee future results. But with gains like that, I can see why members have invested over $500 million in their paintings. Now, I want you to all have smart, diversified portfolios. It's crucial. I'm delighted to report that Masterworks is offering a special deal. If you go to masterworks.io slash sad truth, you get priority access today. That's masterworks.io slash sad truth. I'll see you there. See important disclosures at masterworks.io slash cd. Again, that's masterworks.io slash sad truth. Hey guys, I am so excited today to have with me Patrick Bet David. I'll introduce him in a second, but first let me say, how you doing, Pat? I'm doing good, man. How you doing? You know, uh, I don't know if you you probably saw that I posted last week on Twitter that the virus with no known geographic origins has finally come to the sad household. And just a few days earlier, I was I was driving with my wife and kids and I said, you know what? I think we're immune to this thing. None of us got it. And then, of course, God always laughs. And he said, <laughs> I don't think so, pretty boy. I don't think so, Dr. Good Looks. Gave it to you. Yeah. So first, my son got it uh, last Tuesday. He tested positive. But then for many days, none of us tested positive. Friday, I tested positive. I've been coughing like a monster for the past four or five days. And now my wife tested positive, but my daughter hasn't yet. Did you, did you guys get hit by it, Pat? Yeah, yeah, we did. Well, first of all, I just want to say congratulations to you for uh, joining the uh, community who has had COVID before. You kind of are late to the party. So, uh, uh, but uh, either way, I did have it. And for me, I which one did I have? I'm trying to see if I had the original or the Delta. I think I had the Delta. So I had it uh, uh, January of 2021 when we were moving to Florida. So whatever it was, that's when it was. And I lost, I actually lost 23 pounds during the three weeks of having COVID. No joke. I lost 23 pounds. Couldn't eat anything. Have you kept it off? No, no, it's, I'm back up to 245 pounds, man. It was, it was the, it was a very, it was a better diet than Jenny Craig diet that they sell it or all the other supplements. But, uh, I gained the 23 pounds back. Right. But you're 240 pounds, but you're like 18 feet tall. So it's still average. <laughs> I mean, you know, one of the worst, one of the best ways to humble a guy, you know, I walk into your gorgeous setup and valuetainment and I basically come up to your knees. It's unbelievable. <laughs> well, 
Listen, here's the other part. So for, for the viewers, if you don't know who Omar Sharif is, Omar Sharif at one point was known, I don't know, as the sexiest man alive. That is true. And if you don't know who he is, I don't know if you're editing this or if your guys are going to put it up or not. You can make the comparison of Omar Sharif versus Gatsad. I think, I don't know, man, if you, if this, if this writing books, being a professor, you know, you, you, creating content didn't work out for you. There's this city called Hollywood in, in <laughs> California that is always looking for celebrities and actors. And you look like you belong in Hollywood. You are, you know what? You, you, you were already my favorite person in the world. Now you're doubly <laughs> my favorite person. In the world. You know, I was once told by a colleague of mine, who's a professor at UC Riverside. We, he had come to visit me. We vacation in Newport beach in the summer. And he came, we were hanging out at the beach and he looked at me and he said, what the hell are you doing in academia? You have the looks of a movie star. So he's not lying. There you go. Aren't you sweet? He's not lying. All right. Uh, let me let me just read very quickly some of your background for uh, the folks who don't know you, the three or four folks who don't know you. Left Iran and came to the U.S. at the age of 10, half Armenian. And that is true because I heard you break down the Armenian with my wife and half Assyrian. For those of you who don't know the empire of you know Assyria, it's where modern day Turkey, Iran, Iraq and uh, Syria would be. Uh, you served in the military, 101st Airborne. I'd like to talk about that. You founded PHP Agency, People Helping People Agency, I think maybe 2009. Is that is that right? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, founded Valuetainment. I was very uh, uh, honored to come down and visit you in your studio in Fort Lauderdale. And your books include Doing the Impossible, The 25 Laws for Doing the Impossible, The Life of an Entrepreneur in 90 Pages, Drop Out and Get Schooled, The Case for Thinking Twice About College, and your next five moves, master the art of business strategy. Did I cover the key points, Patrick? Yes, you did. Yes, you did. All right, wonderful. So let's start first with, you know, we have a similar background in that we both left our homeland, you, Iran, me, Lebanon, at almost the same age. I left at the age of 11 to escape the Lebanese civil war. You left at age 10 to es escape the Islamic revolution. Tell us about how your life had been the first 10 years in Iran, and then your new acculturation uh, to the beautiful land of the United States. Yeah, you know, Iran, for me, obviously, you know how the whole saying goes when you ask somebody in Alabama, so what is it like growing up in Alabama? And they say, that's the only thing I know, right? So the only thing I knew was growing up in Iran. You know, I'm a revolution baby, which means the Shah went in exile January of 1979. I was born October 1878, three months before at the peak of the revolution when 9 million Iranians revolted against the Shah because they thought he was too rich, too powerful, and they wanted him gone, and Khomeini showed up, and then boom. Uh, next thing you know, the next eight years, 10 years, the war between them and Iraq, and half a million people died, and on one of the days, I'm six, seven, eight years old, we get bombed 167 times in a day, and uh, my dad decides that we have to get in our white Renault and escape to a city called Karaj, which we go to Karaj. Karaj was like a deserted type of a place, but we went there and uh, it was like the desert. And then we went there, we stayed there for two days and then boom, uh, Karaj started getting bombed. And then we went to Bandar Pahlavi, which is like Port of Pahlavi. They changed the name now. And 10 miles out city named Rasht, that place got bombed. And then we just lived there for 90 days. I went to school down there. And then eventually, my mom and dad had a meeting and my mom's like, listen, this cannot be taking place like this. We got to figure something out. And, you know, as a kid, you're always dreaming about one day coming to America. You're watching Rocky Four. You're watching Gremlins. You're watching Goonies. You're watching all this stuff. Like, man, what if one day we go to the States? It's so crazy 
that any of our relatives, anytime they would go to Australia, I don't know why your Syrians would go to Australia, or they would come to America, they would put a party together. It's like, hey, you're going away. And, and what made these parties cool, Gant, is you would get the Legos from the rich families that would leave. Okay, so it's like, hey, here's some Lego goes to the David family. Patrick, you get this. Here's some of the Barbie that goes here. And, you know, Mattel toys was like the rich man's toys in Iran. And then so finally, you know, my mom said, we got to figure something out. We left Iran, went to Germany, lived at a refugee camp for a year and a half. And then we came to the States November 28, 1990, a day I'll never forget when we landed in New York and I'm walking around the airport looking for Sylvester Stallone. I'm looking for Al Pacino. I'm looking for all these guys. I'm like, they're not here. This is a lie. They're not at the airport. Where are these guys? And then eventually we ended up in Granada Hills and obviously the rest is history. But yeah, Iran was a very unique experience because my family, they were Christians. I was an atheist. I did not believe in God. I didn't think it's possible. I would ask my Sunday school teacher, I said, how could you tell me there's a God that exists after right across the street, the house that had German shepherds that got bombed on? And you can't tell me a God would allow things like that. So I struggled with it a lot, constantly getting kicked out of Bible study. But you would be told you can't tell people who pull you over or talk to you in school or anywhere you're Christians. You got to say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's always this life of fear and uh, visually i remember going to shah i have a painting in my house it's a painting uh, called dead mentors it's myself in a painting with tupac to my right ayrton senna the driver to my left the shah is sitting right here the shah of iran dressed up then you got uh, lincoln kennedy einstein then you got mlk and milton friedman and an empty chair and they're debating two books communist manifesto and Atlas Shrugged that's sitting on the table. That painting describes what's in my head. But Iran had a very big influence of how I view the world today. You know, it's it, I guess that's another thing that's common between us because you grew up as a very small, you know, insignificant minority in a lot in a large sea of possible, you know, any moment now hostility. And it was the same thing for us as Lebanese Jews in Lebanon. Because people oftentimes ask, but wasn't Lebanon tolerant? Wasn't it progressive? Wasn't it the jewel of the Middle East? I mean, yes and no, right? You're healthy until you have a heart attack, right? Around the corner. And so so basically, yes, we, 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 we were well entrenched within Lebanese society, but, you know, Jew hatred was endemic in every nook and cranny of society. And then it just takes one little spark and then, you know, it all goes south very quickly. So so you did live with this kind of existential fear that you were a small, insignificant minority and things can go wrong anytime. You felt that as a child? Yeah. You, you know, uh, like if I go to restaurants, I like to sit in a corner with my back against the wall and I can see everything, right? You you hear certain sounds, like whether you joke about it or not, a certain alarm goes off, it takes you back to Iran. You know, you remember, like I remember, you know, the one sound that just, I Google it regularly to see how I, how it triggers me today. Cause it's on Google and, and here's how it goes. It, the alarm would go, it would go like this over and over again. And then an announcer would come out. Tabajo, tabajo. Alamate Hermes, like, hey, attention, attention. The red signal means that, you know, planes from Iraq have crossed the border. So we're about to be in a, you know, so yeah, it, it triggered a lot of different anxiety, you know, angst, panic, uh, not sure what's going to happen. 
you know, your dream machine shuts down. Like people, my, my son asked me a question, Dylan, the other day, eight years old. He says, he says, uh, I said, daddy, what's your dream? He says, daddy, my dream is to want, you know what I want to do. I want to be one of the best athletes and I want to be a businessman. And I want, I said, that's great. And then he's quiet for about a minute and says, daddy, what was your dream when you were my age? I said, very simple. He says, what's that? Just to come to America and leave Iran. I, I said, I can't think that I had any dreams in Iran. Like I'm being very serious with you. Like I don't, I didn't even know the concept of dreaming. Like, hey, one day I'm gonna be a successful actor. I'm gonna be a successful businessman. I'm gonna be a politician. I'm gonna go be a cop. I, there is nothing about my life in Iran where it was an element of dreaming about who I'm gonna be one day. Nothing. There was no dreaming. Right. That first glimpse came in Germany when we were watching, you know, Baywatch, you know, and you're seeing David Hasselhoff and you're watching Dirty Dancing with, you know, Patrick Swayze and you're seeing, you know, Sat Eins, which was their channel. And you're seeing all these, you know, heroes and lifestyle. I'm like, well, what if one day you can be rich? Like, what if one day I can be an actor? What if then the dream machine started? But when you're living in a place like Iran, I, I'm only speaking uh, uh, for myself. Maybe it's different for a lot of other people. Man, they shut down your dream machine very quickly. Now, in my case, I mean, you know, you talked about David Hasselhoff and, you know, different references that you might have been exposed to. In my case, I mean, I'm a bit older than you. So when I grew up in Lebanon, my exposure to kind of the archetype of America and masculinity was Clint Eastwood in the Spaghetti Westerns. I don't know if you're familiar with them, uh, Patrick, but, you know, I used to, you know, watch a fistful of dollar and the good, the bad and the ugly. And I would see yep. this guy who comes in this, you know, mysterious guy. And I'd say, I, I want to go to that land where this guy lives. And so I, I really uh, can, can uh, commiserate with your, your feeling about Rambo and so on. Did you speak any English when you landed in the United States or not a word? No, I spoke, I spoke, I spoke Farsi, Armenian, Assyrian, and German. Uh, when I came here, but zero English. Have you, have you retained your linguistic ability for each of those languages or have you lost some of them? All of them except for German. I can speak Farsi fluently. I can speak Armenian fluently. I can speak Assyrian. Uh, I can speak Aramaic and German. If you speak to me, I will be able to understand it, but uh, I will probably respond back in English to you. So Iran plays Germany in the soccer World Cup. Who are you rooting for? that's going to be a tough one. I mean, who I'm rooting for and who's going to be realistic to, uh, you know, win it. Of no, no, course. forget it. Who, who cares who wins it? Who are you rooting yeah. for? I mean, yes, Germany is likely to win it, but, but what do you I, I don't know if I have a, uh, an affinity towards, uh, my, my challenge with Iran is it's very complicated because, you know, I have four, 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 uh, communities out there and cultures out there, countries out there that I want to, I want to contribute to in my life, a lifetime. One is Armenian. One is Assyrian. Armenians are going through challenging times right now with Azerbaijan and Turkey and what oh. they're going through. It's a mess. Assyrians, I'd like to see them get a land back where they can have their community and they're being bullied by ISIS. And it's a whole different mess. I met with their general of uh, the military that showed up. We had a very good meeting together. And then, you know, Iran, I would like to Look, I got four kids. I want to be able to take my kids back to Iran and say, "This is you see this building, this four-story building? That's Khyabana Hojat. That's where your father was raised. You see this here? Gulbengian, that's where I went to school to. You see this Assyrian school? This is where I went to school to. You see this over here? This is where we would come and buy Nutella 
once every six months and Nutella was amazing. First time I had banana was in Germany, but I got one piece of banana here when I was nine and a half years old because rich people would eat banana and ananas. Ananas is pineapple. I want to tell that story to the kids. Uh, and unfortunately, we can't do that right now. So there's a part of me that wants to see Iran win, but there's a part of me that also is not happy with the decisions Iran made politically to team up with China and sign a 25-year contract for $400 billion, which I think locks them up uh, for China for 25 years. So it's a love-hate relationship with uh, what they got going on over there. Have you followed just what happened the last few days with the the lady who was killed and then taking off of the hijabs and cutting it? Because I received a million yeah. tweets from yeah. people tagging me, asking me to to you know to use my platform to weigh in, and I, I retweeted something. What are your thoughts? Do you think this might be the catalyst that shifts things around or just going to die well, out like all the other revolutions? Think about it this way. Okay, so let's let's study Kate. Let's let's go through a couple case studies. Right. So today guy calls me and he says, hey, I want to build this kind of a company. What do you think about it? And we're having a 30 minute consulting call with him. I said, give me a case study of another guy that's done this, that's worked for them. And tell me other case studies of 10 people that try to do what you did, that they screwed up. What were those case studies? And we kind of went through those case studies. Here's Iran. So if Iran really wants to have a revolution, when's the last time Iran had a revolution? It was 79. How did it get started? Well, in 1977, December 31, a guy named Jimmy Carter, out of all the places in the world, is in Iran. What's he doing in Iran? He's doing a toast with the Shah of Iran. No way. Yes, this video is available. J Jimmy Carter, out of all the places in the world, on New Year's Eve, is in Iran? Yes. How? Why? Well, let's talk about it. He does a toast and he says to the audience, we just want you to know that the Shah in Iran is one of our most important allies in the world. And it's so impressive to see what the Shah in Iran have done over the last few years. So it's a very complimentary conversation with a champagne being held up and everybody around the world. Wow. U.S. and Iran are so tight. Boom. Jimmy Carter leaves. Next thing you know, a revolution starts. It's kind of weird. And he said, well, don't worry about it. Let's worry about the Today Party, which the Today Party was a communist party back in the days in Iran. A lot of the people that came from Russia, you know, whether it was the, you know, Stalin people were showing up, Lenin people were showing up. So they still have a loyalty to Stalin and Lenin, but they want to bring Iran and they want to, you know, inject the concept of communism. So he feared that and he would have a lot of the people from Savak that would always look out for the Today Party. But he never thought Khomeini would be anybody. He saw Khomeini as a weak person. He was in exile for multiple times. From he was in like, France, right? Where was he? He was in France. Yeah, he was in France. The second time he was in France, he's like, there's no way this guy can do anything. And so Khomeini, his people would send tapes to Iran. And people in Iran would uh, dub it, give it to other people. Dub it, give it to other people. One guy without YouTube, without text, without social media, without anything, with simple tapes, would give to people in Iran and would uh, spread, spread. And his message was... Why is it that the Shah is one of the richest men in the world, if not the richest man in the world? But look how poor Iran is. And look what's happening to our girls. We no longer have any conservative beliefs. We're no longer doing this. All we're doing is no more hijab. Look what's happening to the woman of Iran. There used to be a time where men had power, and now it's this. So, you know, it just kind of makes sense. Anyways, so gradually revolution is going on. Revolution is going on. Revolution is going on. One month, two months, three months. He's not thinking about it. His people are like, listen. This guy's a real threat. No, don't think about it. Don't think about it. Okay. Eventually, six months into it, momentum's been built up. Seven months into it, momentum's been built up. Then an event happens called Cinema Rex Fire. 
Cinema Rex Fire is a, a movie theater, like, you know, AMC movie theater. It's in Abadan. Abadan is like a the, where the, all the oil refineries are in Abadan. It's a pretty rich city, so it's by the water. It's like a bunch of peninsulas. It's a real sexy place. And this movie theater called uh, Cinema Rex is playing movies. 400 people are in the theater. You can Google this. And somebody comes in, locks up all the doors, turns the place, uh, uh, lights the place up, catches fire. 400 right across the street is the police station 400 people cannot leave cinema rex uh, it becomes the one of the biggest events in iran before the revolution becomes called the cinema rex fire some say it was done by khomeini's people but they blame savak savak was the shah's mi6 cia it was who savak was anyways all of a sudden they come out and revolt and saying the shah killed 400 innocent people and the Shah's trying to say it wasn't us and Savak, but that's the argument. That's the power of media and storytelling. Nope, you did it. Nope, you did it. Nope, you did it. 10,000 people showed up. 100,000 people showed up. A million people showed up. The biggest revolution in the history of mankind, 9 million people showed up to revolt. And the typical four criterias of a revolution, none of them were there. It wasn't military attacking. None of the four criterias of a coup or a, you know, a revolution, none of them were there. So all of a sudden, the Shah's talking to Kissinger and talking to Carter. Hey, guys, we're going to need help. We got your back. If something happens, we got you. Oh, we got your back. Oh, we got your back. Oh, we got your back. Got it. What happened? They never got his back. And eventually, he leaves. A couple of his guys take care of him, and eventually ends up in San Antonio and Mexico. A couple of doctors helping him out in New York. Everywhere he went, they kicked him out. And next thing you know, the man died from cancer, and his family's living right now here in D.C., but behind closed doors, Gad, well, what's going on that a lot of people didn't know about is the following. Here's some fun fact here. So, again, I'm going back to your question about to Iran's question you're asking as a case study. Behind closed doors, in 1954, a major petroleum contract was written with Iran in four countries. It was a 25-year contract. This is what no one talked You can Google this and find it. There's a Wikipedia for this if you want to look it up. He signs a contract with four countries. Germany, I want to say UK, France, US. I think it's these four countries. Maybe off on one of them. Well, what happens to the Shah during that 25-year period? He becomes one of the most powerful men in the world. Here's a man that's handsome, that's smart, that speaks very eloquently, that's always been interviewed by Wallace, the father, that's always been interviewed by BBC, and he speaks seven languages. It's a very, very smart man, right? And he kind of has like a royal, regal, poised kind of demeanor no question about it married to beautiful woman farah he's got a family he's got his kids he's doing what he's doing his son right now rp living in dc doing good work for iran bringing a lot of great awareness anyways next thing you know these guys are meeting in mexico there's a meeting where the leadership team of uk france germany u.s met together somewhere in south or central america to say what do we need to do to stop this guy because if this guy continues he's going to bully us into raising prices at a number that none of us can negotiate with. And they were worried. So now, whether you want to call it a conspiracy or whatever, there's plenty of documentation that these meetings took place. So let's go back to case study. What needs to happen for Iran to truly have a successful revolution? Here's what needs to happen. They're going to need the help of somebody from the West that's going to support them. And the chances of that happening today, after all the stuff that's happened, there is no way a revolution is going to happen today under a, you know, administration of uh, uh, Joe Biden or Obama. They tried to do it in 09. Obama was the president. And it got very close. These young students were going out there saying, we want freedom. We want this. We want that. Boom, shut down 
And so these ladies, unfortunate, these ladies are protesting by cutting their hair to get rid of the hijab. There's a video. I don't know if you saw the video where they throw her against the car to throw her in there. Her head hits yeah. the top of the car. She goes to the hospital. 22-year-old girl dies, I think, the next day or the following day. And, and that's become a rally cry, which is unfortunate to see videos like that on what they do to women. But uh, you know, there's a lot of smart people in Iran. Very, a lot of smart people in Iran. A lot of people that love the story of what Amer what Iran was founded on. But unfortunately, it's going to come at the sacrifice of a lot of kids' lives. But they're going to need a superpower to back them up. China's not going to do it. Russia's not going to do it. You only have one superpower that they can do it with. And to do that, you need a two-term president that's going to back them up because the revolution is going to take a couple of years. It's not just going to be like a two-month thing that it's over with. I can attest to the the thirst for knowledge and the hunger for knowledge that uh, Iranians have today because I am privy to a lot of the applications that we receive in my uh, school. Uh, and many are from fantastic uh, Iranian students who are trying to pursue a PhD or a master's. And so you really do get the feeling that there is a disconnect between kind of the Islamic hardliners of the mullah and so on, and the common person who doesn't want to have anything to do with that. Is, is that the is that the correct dynamic? Yeah, I mean, there's no question about it. You know, uh, look, I'm Armenian. In the Armenian community, if you lived in Glendale, there was a lot of uh, uh, Medicare uh, fraud that took place, okay? So, well, let me tell you, your Armenian insurance, first five years when I got started my own insurance company, I was like, well, you know, he's Armenian, he's Armenian, he's Armenian. Uh, one of the guys once asked my wife, he says, hey, how do you feel about the insurance fraud in Armenians and Glendale? And your husband's Armenian. My wife's like, what are you talking about? And they were having this conversation at Napa Valley. So you can't blame the world for viewing, unfortunately, certain, you know, uh, sects, you know, you want to, whether it's uh, Armenians, whether it's Caucasians, whether it's Christians, whether it's African-Americans, whether it's black, you know, whether it's, it doesn't matter. We all have some kind of a reputation, period. When I was in the army and we would joke and nobody got arrested or canceled because there was no such thing as social media. Let me tell you, in the army, if you have a thin skin, that is the wrong place for you because we talked a lot of shit. And it wasn't like a peaceful shit and like, you know, simple stuff. No, it was like this. And you had to take it because so so everybody had the reputation of what they were saying. But no, going back to what you're saying about Iran, and there's a lot of great people. One thing about Iran, if you when I came to the States, um, they put me in a math class, seventh grade. The teacher pulls me aside. He says, why are you looking like this stuff is a joke? I said, because it's a joke. And she says, what are you talking about? I said, ma'am, this is, you know, I'm not, I'm not speaking our language. I'm trying to say, this is too easy. This is this stuff we did in Iran in fifth grade. And she's like, what are you saying? I said, give me a formula. And she would give me a formula. I would just do it. She's like, how do you know that? I said, because I did this in fifth grade. Right. So for me, I was like, well, Patrick's such a calculus and he's a math analysis and look how great he is in math. No, because in Iran, that's a priority. So there's a lot of things Iran does right. They produce a lot of smart people. But unfortunately, the climate over there is very disappointing. And I feel bad for some. Uh, I'd love to see nothing more but to see those guys be free so I can go to Iran for vacation. But we're not there yet. Well, I feel the same kind of uh, desire to take my children uh, you know, when you were mentioning this is where we did this and this is where my dad did this, I would love nothing more. N never mind to show it to my children. 
I left Lebanon under very extreme circumstances and it almost feels as though it's a movie that's in my head, but that happened to another person because it's now so far behind in my past. Yeah. And I would love to actually see it palpable. This is the the school where daddy went. This is the, well, I don't think the, the house where we lived exists anymore because we were actually right at the line of East and West Beirut where some of the heaviest fighting happened. So I don't think that house exists, but I really do understand sort of the nostalgia of going back to your homeland. But now let, let me skip to the next uh, topic because you kind of alluded to it when you talked about uh, how it was being in the military. What led you to join uh, the military? So that's part one. And then part two, what caused you to decide, I've done my stint. I don't want to be a military man for my entire career. Yeah, great question. So for a part of it was accidental. A part of it was like a, you know, uh, I just wanted to get away. Like I'm working at Burger King. And when I was 14 years old, a guy named Jesus Guerra, I'd love to meet this guy one of these days. I keep talking about his name until he finds me. I found the guy that gave me the job at Morgan Stanley, Dean Wooder, Dave Kirby. Finally found him. I'd love to find Jesus Guerra. But Jesus would come to me and he would say, hey, but David, when are you going to join the army when you get out of uh, high school? I'm like, I'm not joining the army. He says, look, your grades are not great. If you want to go out there and have fun and be a man and travel the world and the government pays for it, you got to join the army. So he would keep dropping this and following up and tell me this, right? Because I wasn't a you know good student. The only thing I did good in math, everything else I could care less about. So finally, years later, I'm working at Burger King one day. I, you know, I'm at my sister's place. We're partying until 4 o'clock in the morning in the jacuzzi downstairs in a city called Encino off of Burbank Boulevard. And... uh I go upstairs, the girls, the friends leave, and then I'm upstairs, I'm bar, you know, living with her for about a month. I gave her my computer and a car, so she would let me live there for a month. Anyways, I wake up in the morning, my car is gone. I'm like, wait a minute, wh where is this thing? It's gone. Well, maybe I forgot where I parked the last time, so I walk all over the place. Nope, it's gone. Call the cops, report the thing, and I'm sitting there. I'm like, you know what? Screw this. I call my dad. I said, Dad, come and drop me off to Glendale recruiting station. He says, why? I said, I'm joining the army. My dad hangs up, comes, we go to the recruiting station. I say, Hey, Seuss, I'm signing up with one caveat. He says, what's that? I said, I'm in. If you can get me to go to boot camp tomorrow, he says, it's not going to happen. It's going to take six months, three to six months. I said, I'm not doing that. I said, I want to go tomorrow. Long story short, two weeks later, I'm in the U S army in South Carolina. Nobody knows I joined the army family wise. My friends, we put a party together by my mom's in Iran. Like, what are you talking about? I went to the army. Best thing I ever did. Culturally, you learn so many different things about different nationalities, different cities. You learn about South Dakota, Alabama, Mississippi, New York. You know, you learn about so many th different things, friction, fighting, camaraderie, humor, witty, teamwork, leadership, work ethic. There is so much brotherhood. Value. Oh, let me tell you, the, the brotherhood till today, you know, when, when I talk to my guys from the army, it's a different kind of a conversation. We have my sergeant from the army is coming to my house this week because. It's my son's birthday. So him and his wife are flying in from Austin. This guy and I partied together at 18. What was that? 16 years? No, 25 years ago. We'd go drink back from Nashville. We had 26 beers. We're driving back from Nashville. Some of the most irresponsible things I did was in the Army, but some of the most incredible memories I have is in the Army. Anyways, long story short. So that's the Army stories. Why I got out. The night before me re-enlisting, re when Lieutenant Colonel Peacox got me all the orders I wanted, I owe this man. If I wanted these days, I meet him. I'd love to give him a nice uh, uh, thank you and, and you know, to treat him to a nice dinner. Every order I asked him, he got it for me. Everything. I'm about to get my Army Accommodation Medal. It's a celebration for me the next day. 
I'm going to Vicenza, Italy, Sears School, DLI, linguistic, because I speak multiple languages. And I'm going to go special forces and eventually possibly be in Delta is what, you know, my friend and I, we would talk about. Anyways, the night before I get a call from a guy named Kogan Alaverdian, this guy calls me one of my best friends. He says, hey, Pat, what's going on? I said, nothing. Tomorrow's a big day. I'm re-enlisting for six years. He says, How long mean? had you served so far? What was your two first? Two years. At the time, was two years and three months. Okay. okay. It was a delayed entry program for two and a half years. And the plan was to get out. But they offered me everything. So I'm like, I'm going to stay for six years. And then I'll see what I'll do. He says, you can't stay in the Army. I said, dude, it's too late. Tomorrow's my uh, celebration, ceremony. He says, no, you can't do that. I said, dude, I'm, it's too late. He says, give me one hour to sell you on not doing it. I said, it's not going to work. One hour again. This guy goes back and forth telling me, let me tell you why you got to get out. Let me tell you what I think you can do. Let me tell you this for one hour. And he says, think about it. Didn't sleep all night. First thing in the morning, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, I go to Lieutenant Colonel Peacock's. I said, I got to tell you something, man. This is very hard for me to tell you this. What's that? I'm getting out of the Army. He says, what? I said, I'm not reenlisting. He says, we worked so hard to get these orders. But we went to the Virginia. I said, I totally get it. I, I'm, I'm telling you, I will forever be thankful for you. But I got to get out and see if I can make it as a civilian. I got a vision. There's certain things I want to do. Anyways, they pulled my back Army Accommodation Medal. I never got my, I got my Army Achievement. I never got the Army Accommodation Medal. And then uh, my friend uh, ends up getting all my orders, and he ends up becoming Delta. He makes it to the highest level. The guy's one of the wow. most heroic figures in America last 20 years that you won't know about. And so I get out, out of the Army, and I have no clue what the hell to do. I'm a Hummer mechanic, and I'm a decent shooter. So imagine, hey, uh, how many Hummer mechanics are needed in L.A.? There's one dealership that sells Humvees, H1, and it's in Camarillo, California. I called the guy. said, hey, uh, uh, I'm the best Hummer mechanic out of Fort Campbell, Kentucky. He says, sir, we sell one Hummer, if not two per month. We have one mechanic right now. It's one too many. We're not hiring. I'm like, oh, shit. I said, I'm a pretty good shooter as well. So what are we going to do? We don't need a sniper. We don't need a hitman. You know, we're dealership. Anyway, so I got into a, a gym, Bally Total Fitness. I was trying to be a bodybuilder back then, and it completely took me to a different section uh, era of my life. Uh, do you mind sharing what was the stuff that was shared with you during that one hour that was so convincing and persuasive yeah. that it flipped you? It's Look, my friend said, he says, Pat, we all saw you as the Middle Eastern Will Smith combined with Arnold. That's who you were in high school. I'm like, what does that even mean? He says, first of all, you had humor. You were funny. You were charming. You were charismatic, but you were strong. You had a sense of humor. You were sarcastic. You can... You, you, you would, you would, you know, you had the looks, the body, all this stuff. It's like, there's no way you can stay in the army. He's, and by the way, this is the first time where somebody poured into me for an hour the way Kogan did. This is not culturally, this is, we're not used to this kind of a language. So, and in the army, it's more kicking your ass than it's about, hey, here's you, who you can be. So I'm, I'm responding to that, but I'm like responding to that. But when he's saying this stuff to me, and he says, why don't you just come out, try Hollywood, try acting, try bodybuilding. And, dude, if it doesn't work out, you can always go back into the Army and do 20 years. But you don't want to do it right now because if you go six years, you're going to go 20 years. You'll be 38. Why do it? Come out, test it out. And if it doesn't work out, then go back in the Army. And that was a great argument. And, you know, my dad had bought me a – my dad said, if you re-enlist for six years, I'll buy you a brand-new camera. He bought me a $250 camera, send it to me. I received it because I told him I'm re-enlisting. Then forget about Lieutenant Colonel Peacock. I have to tell my dad I'm getting out. And my dad wants me to stay in him for, for 20 years, and this is my hero. So it was one of the toughest decisions I ever made in my life. 
maybe I will even tell you it's probably the toughest decision I ever made in my life. But man, it was a great decision I made at 20 years old. This might be the right time. I often ask this of my guests, but usually towards the end of the conversation. But I think it's appropriate to ask it now. Uh, one of the things that I talk about in my forthcoming book, which is a book on how to live the good life and how to achieve happiness and so on, using my personal life as an example, but also backed up by science. I talk about, you know, you've lived a good life if when you're sitting on the porch, looking back at your life, you have as few regrets as possible. But before I ask you, you know, to tell me about your regrets, if any, let me uh, set it up as follows. So one of my former uh, doctoral uh, professors uh, when I was a PhD student, his name is Thomas Gilovich. He pioneered the study of the psychology of regret in the following way. So he argued that there are two sources of regret. There is regret due to actions, right? I regret that I cheated on my wife and that resulted in the, the end of our marriage and I was such an asshole versus regret due to inaction. I regret that I didn't pursue my love for acting and I went into the military because my dad yeah. was a military man. And it turns out, uh, Patrick, that over the long run, people's greatest source of regret comes from regret due to inactions rather than regret due to actions. So I know you're still a, a very young man, but if I ask you right now, I put you on the spot and say, give me your you know, one, two, three biggest sources of regret. Yeah. Would you be able to tell us what they are? Yeah. So, so let me see. I, 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 you have to know, yeah, the way I work, it's so funny. And, and let me preface this before I give, and I'll give you the answer. I, I very rarely live in things I've could have done differently because it's never served me well to go to that side of, I regret this. I regret that. I regret that. You know, and Jeff Bezos talk about talks about life is about regret minimization to make the yes. few, the person that wins is to die with the fewest amount of regrets that you make. And I, I subscribe to that. Now, at the same time, it's also naive to not look at the past trends and mistakes you made to not repeat it again. Right. Yes. So let's go through some of them. Uh, Erica Flores was a girl I was crazy about in high school. Never asked her. It. I should. By the way, I love. Can I just interrupt you? Yeah. You have yeah. such a gift to be a, a raconteur in French. It means storytelling because by incorporating what seemed to be insignificant details, the name of this person or that city, I don't know if you do it on purpose or not, but that really makes the storytelling so much more powerful. So kudos to you, sir. No, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Erica Flores was dating a guy named Doogie Douglas. And I was crazy about this girl. We had, uh, we had an English history class. Uh, uh, Miss Driffle was her name. And she would sit right next to me. She would always laugh at my jokes, her and Rose. And I would walk her to her science class, Mr. Shoemaker, who was the best-looking teacher we had in high school, was a football coach. I should have asked her out. And, you know, I never did that. I was afraid to ask her out. So that's one. Let's see, what else can we say? Have you School. ever gotten in touch with her again in the same way that you did with somebody uh, else? Yeah, I mean, listen, it's this is, I was 14, 15 years old at the time, and uh, uh, I was in seventh grade at Wilson Junior High School, and we would fold our clothes, and she would come to me, and she would say, you have the best last name I've ever met in my life. But David is the best last name ever. So these small memories of innocence, you're seven years old, seventh grade, clueless about life, Here's a Mexican girl that you got a little crush on that's coming and telling you, hey, you know, uh, 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 you have the best last name. We had the yellow and purple, that blue uh, uniform, Wilson Junior High School. It, it, it's just a beautiful moment it, when you look back right now. Today, if we see each other, there's nothing there. It's empty. Oh. But during that time, it was a monumental moment. So uh, next, it would have been in high school. 
I, I was in very good physical shape, but I never played organized sports. I never played organized sports. We were very poor. And I worked afterwards. I had a job always at 3.30 when I would leave school, whether it was haagen or whether it was Bob's Big Boy or whatever. I always had a job. I always liked working. But I never played or I've never, when I tell you, God, I've never played organized. I'm six, four and a half, six, five. I'm in good shape. I'm pretty strong. I've never, and I was, I ran very, very fast. I never played organized sports. I wish I would have participated in more activities in school than I did. I, I really was very uh, passive about it. I uh, wonder, lot, sorry to interrupt you. I wonder if the camaraderie that you ended up having in the military, in a sense, made up for the fact that you didn't get that camaraderie yeah. in playing football or basketball. You now yeah. got it a few years later when you joined the military. You know, that's a good point there on military, how much how important the camaraderie was. I will tell you, when I was in high school, I'm the guy that loved baseball because, and I would buy Daily News over LA Times because Daily News offered more stats than LA Times would. Daily News, LA Times would only do batting average, RBI, home runs, hits, and maybe stolen bases and a little bit of ERA. Daily News would go, all of that versus win-loss ratio versus, you know, on-base percentage. And I just loved looking at the stats of daily. Like, for me, baseball was like a dream to one day play. I looked up to a guy named Juan Gonzalez who had a number 19 jersey. My 8-year-old son's jersey right now playing baseball is 19. I mean, life is very interesting how this thing works. No, but I wish I would have put a little bit more time into uh, sports and gotten involved. Never did as competitive as I was. I was always selling. I was always working. Listen, it ended up working out in a major way in my life because that could have gone a complete different way. And, and that's why I say by the part that I don't know, you know, I don't know if I would have done, uh, uh, you know, you know, like, for example, job. Let's just say, my, like, sometimes you have the conversations, okay, what if my parents were like me, where they have the resources for my kids? Who would I have become? I would have probably been a lawyer. Well, would I have made it to where I'm at today? I don't know if I would have. I don't know if I would have, you know, the, the concept of faith, it, it, faith isn't just, you know, having faith in a God. I'm a Christian man today, but faith to me is multidimensional, right? Sometimes you got to sit there and have faith that, listen, maybe your parents were chosen for you. Right. Whether you like it or not, we were having a big debate this morning with my personal trainer, E, about fathers. I said, tell me what is the example of a successful father, you know, because we're talking about two different examples in life. One guy that's a billionaire and his father who mom and dad stayed together. He's African-American. His mom and dad had seven kids together, five boys, two daughters. And mom and dad stayed together till the very end. You know, and we're like, man, we can, we figure so many ways to blame our parents. Like our mom did this, our dad did this and all this stuff. Like, I don't know the way I judge a great father is that by the product he produces that the son or the daughter is not reliant on the government, that they can independently yeah. make their own money, raise a good family, be a good citizen, contribute to society, be respectful towards your heritage, your last name, your country, your industry. And then you pass it down and you produce kids that become independent. And this kind of continues, right? So, you know, faith to me is all of those events happen for a reason because it produced a certain amount of rage and passion that. If I didn't make it up in the first 20 years of my life, I was definitely going to make it up in the next 60, 70, 80 years of my life. So it, it, it's a very funny exercise to go through and talk about what I would have done differently. But I would have definitely asked Erica Flores out, and I would have definitely tried to play some kind of organized sports. <laughs> what a fantastic answer. Since you mentioned fatherhood, I, I just recently appeared, I think a week or two ago, 
on a it, it's a small podcast, but I thought it was so such a sort of cute uh, niche market that he was developing. He, I think the the podcast he's going to get some free plug here. It's called First Class Podcast, uh, First Class Fatherhood Podcast, where he just talks to you know well known fathers and you know what it is for them to be a father and so on. So for you, I mean, you I know you were speaking to your was it your trainer about fatherhood? Was that your trainer? Yes, this yeah. morning. Yeah. What, so so what? What do you consider are your best qualities as a father? And what are some of the things that you're currently failing at, if anything, as a father? Yeah. So, uh, man, I, it's very hard to map. When you have resources, it's very hard to be tempted to uh, uh, enable them too much. With the, you produce leaners instead of leaders. I don't want to produce leaners where they're leaning on daddy. That's a battle I'll constantly have. And, you know, I, I, we had relatives that would try to uh, win your love with gifts. I try to not win their love with gifts and stuff I buy them. My kids will probably tell you, dad doesn't buy us a lot of things. Uh, you know, it's more about experiences and taking them places and challenging them and pushing them and realizing that they have a pretty easy life. I got to figure out a way to produce a little bit of toughness for them, a little bit of pressure for them because we're living in a society right now that everybody wants to take the pressure away and the toughness. So I'm like, shit, the life I live, if, if anxiety is produced by teachers and expectation being a little bit too much, okay, well, what about living in an environment where you're getting 100, bombed 167 times? What should that produce on a level of anxiety, mental issues, and all these other challenges? I mean, I should have been mentally off. All the kids from Iran, we should have been all mentally off, or any, any of these guys that are going through challenging times should be off. No, I, I think... I think sometimes if you do have the luxury, you know, the whole stat about name me one billionaire right now named Vanderbilt. Name me the most famous Vanderbilt today. You can't. Why? Vanderbilt's were the richest people in the world. What happened? A typical billionaire's wealth lasts three generations. Why? Because what doesn't get passed on, you may have generational wealth, but you don't have generational habits. That's the challenging part. So in generational habits have to be caught, not taught. So you're hoping your kids catch your generational habits and they choose to pass it down to their kids of those habits. The money can be passed, but billion dollars a person can spend in 10 years. A billion dollars can be gone in a year. Heck, Mark Zuckerberg lost $70 billion this year so far in 2022. So it's not about generational wealth. My interest is more generational habits and generational mindset so they can pass down to their kids. Now, what what uh, are things that I can work on as a parent today with uh, these guys? I think probably um, the balance of spending time with them and spending time with their mom, my wife, you know, because uh, uh, that that's a very important balance where it can't be all about the kids. They have to also see mom and dad are also doing good. So you got to balance the private <clears throat> time with you and mom where all the trips are not about you uh, wife and all the kids. Sometimes you got to have a trip that's just you and the wife, and uh, they got to see they got to see mommy and daddy in a good place. Uh, marriage is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Marriage is not easy. I've ran businesses, I've sold businesses, I've made a lot of money, I've done a lot of things in the military, a lot of challenging things in life. You know, things. You, marriage is probably the most difficult thing you'll well, do. What, because, what is it that you're find that you you have found? Yeah, so I'll tell you. So, from my perspective, uh, uh, is. I have a hard time getting along with myself all the time. So let alone me getting along with myself, throw another human being in that equation and then have her have four kids with you 
and then try to make it all work with all these people that are different, they're wired different, their DNA is different, their interest is different, then throw your family, then throw her family, in-laws, and then throw the friends, throw the being married 13 years and we've tr we've lived in 12 different homes in 13 years. We've lived in three different states and I've moved our office 12 different times in 13 years of being married. That's pretty complicated, right, to be able to do that. And then manage your vision of what you want to do with your life. And you don't want to compromise your vision long term, what you want to do and have her buy into it. Yet at the same time, she needs to have her own identity that she's also comfortable with because she can't be lost in translation and have a bunch of different political climate issues that come up that you agree with. She disagrees with you guys agree with you guys disagree with put all of that together and try to make it work. It's a very different kind of a thing. You know, you can start a business and it fails. You start another one. You know, marriage is a thing that I said a long time. I'm just going to do it one time. I'm not going to do it twice. I'm going to do it one time, which means it's either this is working out or that's it. It's not like we're going to do it two or three times. So, yeah, but aside from that, you know, you talk to my wife, she would probably tell you this to um, our marriage is the best it's ever been. But it, the okay. reason why our marriage is the best it's ever been is because when I got married, uh, on the eve of us getting married, June 26th of 09 at uh, Hilton Glendale, used to be Red Lion, I got up and I said, I want to tell you guys something here. A few things to friends and family. Do not come and ask my wife if she's pregnant. It's none of your business. It's our business. Number one, don't talk to her. Because if you ask her that question, you're not going to see me at dinner again. I don't want you to bother us to create unnecessary pressure. It is our marriage, not yours. Number two, I don't know how long we're going to be married. But I can tell you one thing for a fact. We're going to take marriage one year at a time. And I can tell you for a fact, we're going to be married for one year. And then we'll see if we're going to go second year and third year and fourth year and fifth year. As crazy as this sounds, I think too many times we put such unnecessary pressure on marriage and kids that you don't even know how to enjoy marriage and kids because of unnecessary expectations from parents, from your religion, from your community, from your friends, from yourself. So I want to I want to enjoy this thing, but uh, yeah, that's what I would say with parenting and and kid and marriage. Maybe I'll just share. Uh, even though I'm asking you the questions, I'll answer my own question. I think probably the thing that I regret the most in my parenting so far. It might sound trivial, but to me, it matters. My wife speaks three languages: French, English, and Armenian. I speak four languages: French, English, Arabic, and Hebrew. And yet, our children only speak French and English because if she speaks to them in Armenian. I'm blocked out. If I speak to them in Arabic or Hebrew, she's blocked out. So we decided to just stick to the two um, uh, languages, languages that we share. Yeah. And therefore, we have five languages between the two of us. And yet our children are not unlike anybody who would have grown up in Montreal. And so we've lost all that linguistic uh, you know, heritage. And so yeah. I really regret that. And one of the things that, you know, to go back to our earlier conversation about, you know, go, you going back to Iran, me going back to Lebanon, I've always fantasized about, you know, taking a visiting professorship for a year, you know, at American University of Beirut, where they would now be immersed in Arabic for a whole year while they're still young, and suddenly they would become fluent speakers. But it's very, very difficult for me. My children are now 13 and 10 for me to try to kind of it seems forced and constrained to try to speak to them in Arabic because it feels like a vocabulary uh, lesson, right? Let yeah. me tell you what sun means in Arabic, shemis. Let me tell you what hair is. So it's not natural, right? Whereas when you're speaking to them as they're growing up, 
they learn it on the fly, right? You don't have to be teaching them vocab. And so I so regret that. Do you share any of that with, with your hundred percent? I would add that to the list. I I did all what you just said. You're you're right. You know, it's and it's funny because it's not my kids' fault. It's their daddy's fault yeah. because my oldest son Tico said the other day, he says, uh, Dad, I want to learn Armenian. I'm like, really? Yeah. Hmm. I don't talk to anybody in Armenian in our house except for my sister comes over. So my dad and I speak Assyrian. And Assyrian is a very difficult language to learn. It's Aramaic. So we'll speak Assyrian. And I'll speak to Siamak, which is my brother-in-law, my sister's husband, in Farsi because he's, he's Persian. He's Iranian. And my sister and I will talk Armenian. So my son, him and his brother, they both want to learn Armenian. So... Babe, if you hear this, babe, we gotta we gotta figure something out with this Armenian thing. We gotta get the kids to learn one of the languages. I, I was amazed when I came to your offices, and uh, if you remember, I was in the green room with my wife, and you two just broke out the Armenian. I was like, damn, I didn't, uh, I, I hadn't connected that you spoke Armenian you, so well. By the way, your wife is beautiful, and, oh, and, and I know you, you know that. But your wife is beautiful. I'm obviously, both of you married a very uh, handsome and attractive uh, spouse, you. but you guys both look like you're in Hollywood. So, Oh, aren't you kind? Thank you so much. Okay, let's move on to the rest of your uh, trajectory because there's all, uh, I mean, occupational trajectory because, you know, there are all kinds of life lessons we can glean from that. So then in 2009, you start uh, PHP and then Valuetainment. Tell us these two grand uh, initiatives that you took on. Yeah, so when when I got out of the army, I, I wanted to be a bodybuilder. Eventually, I dated a girl named Janvier that introduced me to Morgan Stanley Dean Witter a day before 9-11. I got started with them, and I got a serious 766-3126 life and health. I could sell stocks, bonds, mutual funds, commodities, futures, you name it, I could sell them. So I fell in love with the financial industry. Again, it's numbers. Numbers to me, it's fascinating. So I was with them for about a little less than a year. Then I went to Transamerica. I was there for seven and a half years. Did very well, learned a lot from those guys. Then in October of 2009, started my own insurance company with 66 agents. We grew to 35,000 agents. Today, we have roughly 20,000 active agents nationwide, 200 plus offices. And we recently sold the company 12 weeks ago to a very, very powerful insurance company uh, out there. Great partners. We're very excited about them. But that happened 12 weeks ago. And... Uh, accidentally in 2012, uh, I started a YouTube channel called Patrick Bed David. I started doing one video a week called two minutes with Pat. It was a serious, I did a hundred episodes to see how it would do. Uh, two years later, I'm like, you know what? Maybe we're going to do something with this because two years later, God, we were blown up. We had 2000 subscribers a year later, massive YouTube channel. You know, it was like, we're killing it. <laughs> and we would do videos that would get 200 views. We're like, dude, this is sick. We got 200 views. It was so exciting. Cause so then I'm like, what, what's the hump? What caused yeah, the escape velocity? Good. What's the that's magic recipe? So I, so I went to an event and a guy named Michael Hyatt, who was a former CEO of Thomas Nelson uh, publishing. Uh, he's out of Nashville. He said, choose your one word of what you want to do with content. And I was all over the place. So I said, look, what are you obsessed about that you can't stop talking about? I asked my wife, I asked everybody around me, and we came with two words, entrepreneurship and capitalism. I said, great, then that's what I'm going to do. We're going to make the number one channel on YouTube for entrepreneurs. That's all I'm going to talk about. Anyways, we changed the channel to Value Tamen. I was excited about this name because it was, uh, you know, I said, what do we stand for? We bring value, but we entertain people, and it's becoming a movement, Value Tamen. And I found that Value Tamen is a publicly traded company in Germany. So I reached out to the CEO, a guy named Dirk. I said, I'm interested in your domain. He says, I'm on the stock market. I said, sell it to me. <laughs> he said, I'm not going to do it. Anyways, six months later, he gave like a big number on what to do. 
three years later, he was nice enough to sell it to me for a nice uh, amount. We bought by Tamen.com. He changed his company's name to Value Tees. And then next thing you know, uh, uh, Value Tamen went to 20,000 subs, 30,000 subs. We partnered up with Entrepreneur Magazine. I created content for them for two or three years. I was in their magazine pretty much on every uh, monthly basis, if not every other month in their magazine. So then uh, we uh, uh, took Value Tamen and grew it, went to 100,000 subs. And then all of a sudden, uh, we had, uh, I think we had 1,500 subs. I did the life of an entrepreneur in 90 seconds on Facebook. On YouTube, it only got 2,500 views in 24 hours. I uploaded it on Facebook. In 24 hours, it became the most viral video on Facebook at that time. This is pre-things going viral. Uh, it got 10 million views in 24 hours. Later on, with all the different uploads and different places that was posted, over 250 million views, one video. Wow. And then... Uh, so suddenly I'm like, okay, this is kind of cool. So then our channel went to 20,000 subs and then we went to 100,000 subs. And then I started looking at niches of things to do. So I would do money videos. A couple of the money videos got 5 million views, 3 million views. Then I would do business videos, 4 million views, 3 million views. And then I started doing, uh, uh, interviewed Clint Hill, the secret service agent for Jackie Kennedy and John F. Kennedy. That went viral, 7, 8 million views. Then I started doing uh, bodybuilding interviews, 20, 30 million views of bodybuilding interviews. And then I did some mobster interviews. Then I did some CIA interviews, FBI interviews, billionaire interviews, sports interviews with Kobe Bryant was all over the news, uh, was picked up by CBS, ABC, ESPN, everybody. And then and then it became a media company. And now it's a consulting company. And now we, you've been to this building. We have a podcast that we do here. We bring other talent as well. We're building a live talent, uh, live building over there where you're going to be able to do your podcast with 300. Like next time we do a podcast together uh, here, once the place is up and running, you will see 150, 200 people sitting in front of us while we're doing the podcast. So we're wow. turning it into a whole, and I'm buying an 11-acre campus. Hopefully if this works out to build out our entire campus of Valuetainment Media to compete in a marketplace against some of the other media companies. Because uh, 15 years ago, 13 years ago, uh, Pastor Dudley Rutherford gave a message saying there's seven mountains to climb in America. He says military, business, you know, politics, uh, family, entertainment, all this stuff. And media was one of them. He says the toughest one to climb is media. And media is the most important one right now because it's about controlling the narrative because the audience is only hearing one thing. Like we know education, universities, they're only hearing one thing. Guys like you are hated in 90% of universities in America. You're not a liked uh, a professor, not by per students are going to like you because you make sense. The faculty, everybody else is going to be like, Hey man, you're kind of going in the direction we don't like, but uh, yeah, we, we want to, we want to take what uh, Ted Turner did and Kirk Kerkorian did and an element of what Reed Hastings did with uh, Netflix, put it together and be a major media empire the next 20 years. So that, that's what we're it's doing. Unbelievable. I mean, and you, you know, you really do exude, that can do attitude i mean just anybody who meets you from the first time that i met you in our you've invited me twice on your show once remotely once in person you you really do exude that you know i can achieve anything i put my mind to and i i'm not sure and you you may disagree with me but i'm not sure that that's something that can be taught i mean it's nice to promise people here are the the steps one two three to how yeah. to become a, a killer entrepreneur but I'm not sure that that can be truly thought. I think you're you're born with it. Uh, do, do you agree with that? You know, uh, uh, I'm not going to patronize you and say, no, you know, let me play the humble. No, I'm not going to do that. You're right. Absolutely. Like when you storytelling my entire life, I've been told 
I tell good stories. The whole thing with telling names and stories, I don't do that intentionally. It's just how I yeah. view me telling the story, right? I've been like that since I was a kid. But I will say this part to you. I was a lazy kid who was distracted, who didn't do anything with school, who was all over the place, who was confused until a vision got clear in my eyes when my dad had a heart attack and he was about to die. And he was the most important man in my life. And I love my dad. And when I was six years old, when somebody said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, I want to be a dad because I want to be like my dad. That's my hero. He's I want to be alive. him. He's still alive and he lives with me. He's 80 years old. Uh, and I'm, one of my dreams was for my kids to know him and they know him very well and they love Papa. Great. And I'm the happiest man alive that that's taking place. But, you know, so we went to, uh, I saw him have a heart attack and I went to the hospital, UCLA Medical Center, and it really hurt me that he hurt me that they were not giving him the right kind of service. And I got kicked out because I was upset at the doctor and the nurses. I'm downstairs in the Ford Focus in the car saying, what the hell are you doing with your life? Going to club six days a week. Are you out of your freaking mind? Your dad's about to die. He works at a 99 cent store in Inglewood, right next to the Great Western Forum. And here you are going to party, Dublin's, Pimps and Hoes, you know, Century Club, you know, all these other, what are you doing? So I'm like, I'm done. This is it. Next day I went to work. And then uh, a year and a half after that, another event took place when we were at a Christmas party. And uh, one of our relatives made a joke about my dad in front of me. And I did not like it. And I told my dad, I said, people don't talk to you like that. He says, it's just a friend. You can't, you can't get upset. He's my friend. I said, I don't care who he is. He doesn't say something like that to you. I said, you can't talk to my dad like that. He says, but you're, you're a kid. I've known this man for 50 years. I said, and he's changed your life. You don't make a joke about somebody that changed your life. I said, we're getting out of here. And my dad's like, no, we're not. You're here with me. I said, no, I drove you. Nobody talks to you like this. They don't talk to my dad like this. So we got in the car. 30 minutes, we're arguing from Glendale to Granada Hills. And I said, they're going to have to kill me, but they're going to know your last name. And no one talks to you like that. I'm telling you right now, that'll never happen again. Who do you think you are? We're just regular people. What did the military do to you? Why did you all of a sudden get like this? Just relax. Your, your temper is, I said, no, no one talks to you like that. It's that simple. And believe me, I'm going to give them the argument to realize what kind of a son you raised. Over. So I, then I called a meeting with my sister. And my brother-in-law, and I told him the same thing. I said, the world's going to know who we are. I'm 24 years old at this time. I'm a nobody. So this like, is literally. way before P PHP. Oh, I'm, a no, I'm not even PHP. I'm 49K in debt. And I'm my girl just dropped me, you know, left me for another guy. I'm, I'm, I'm a nobody at this time. So here's the point I'm trying to make to you. The can-do attitude. Okay, I will say to you that sometimes the best thing that can happen to a man is to be offended. You know, we, we, uh, uh, we, and, and I know some are going to say, well, no, you know, it's about controlling your emotions and all this other stuff. Fine. No problem. I totally get you. But I read a book by a British diplomat that said it was called leaderless revolution. And it says a, a lot of the biggest revolutions in the world happen because a man or a woman, one of three things happened to them. They figured out what they hate. They figured out that something bothers them and something they love. It produced an emotion that you saw a different side of them. If you knew me when I was 21, I'm the guy you wanted to party with. I was joking, loose, what's up, let's go out, the ladies, that, I was that guy, you want to party with me. But you would have never said this guy's going to go be, you know, a successful businessman. You wouldn't have said that. You just said, this guy's a freaking fun guy. Let's go to Vegas with this guy, right? But when that happened, you know, I don't know why the fire all of a sudden like this lit in my belly. I did a business planning workshop course last year. And we're sitting there because we wrote the book, Your Next Five Moves. So the publishers now, I'm writing the next one for Penguin with Portfolio. Really excited about this one. 
because I kept looking for a book on business plan. No one's written a great book on business plan where the average person needs to read it. Everything's about how to create a pitch deck, how to raise money, and people don't understand that stuff. I want a basic life plan, business plan. So I wrote out 12 building blocks. Six of them are logical on what you need to do, like how to, but six of them are emotional. We spend too much time in life trying to figure out how to do stuff. One of the elements of the six that's emotional is finding an enemy. And, and so people say, what do you mean enemy? There's a difference between competition and enemy. I have a lot of people that I compete with in the marketplace, insurance, business, YouTube content, whatever. But there's a difference emotion an enemy produces that a competitor will never produce. When, when you have a true enemy, like a Michael Jordan had a true enemy. Brady has an enemy. Okay. You got guys that have true enemies. You could be at a dinner. You could be at a fun. You could be at a game and you're having a conversation with them. All they're thinking about is how to plot the next seven moves to get closer to prove a point to this, 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 that. Now, again, some may say that's hypomanic. That's manic. That's bipolar. That's this. That's that. Call it whatever you want. FYI, for people that are watching this, everybody we read about, we write about, we watch, we talk about documentary, they have true enemies and you don't yet. So when I see someone that has true emotion produced, something happens with their eyes. I tell a big story. There's a reason why even the greatest poker players. By enemy, sorry, before you go on. So enemy would be Messi versus Ronaldo because that forces both of them to become better. Yes. If neither of them existed, they wouldn't have necessarily yes. reached the heights that they would have without yes. the other one being there. Like look at the NBA today. The NBA today very rarely has enemies. Yeah. You know, opponents are, you know, hey, what's up, dog? Let's go party. And Jordan's like, no. You know, Kobe's like, what are you talking about, bro? You're an enemy. You're taking a championship from. So it was a different element of a game. Brady's enemy. Like Brady the other day, got set, guy said something to him. He gets in the guy's face. Mike Evans comes and shoves him. The yeah. guy's going to get suspended for a game. Guess what? I freaking love it. Yeah. No wonder that guy's got seven championships and he's 45 years old, still going. And people can give him whatever labels they want. Well, look at his personal life. Look at this. Look at that. He'll figure that part out that's on him. So I think when you're saying, I can see you having this can-do attitude your entire life, I, I appreciate that. And I will say, yes, you're right. I probably had an element of this. But if I wouldn't have been, you know, having some of those moments in my life that were that emotional, there's no way in the world I'm at this pace of where I'm at right now today. I may I be wrong. That's that's what I would say. No, but I really do understand what you mean because I I recently I was giving a talk at University of Texas Austin uh, in May I think it was and in the Q and A someone asked me you know how is it that you can handle all the adversity that you faced and you know you come out on top and I answered in a way that I think speaks to what you're saying I said you know what every time someone comes after me I get this fire of then going back and shoving it up really deep up their ass. There you go. And, and and so so that's speaking to exactly what you're saying. And even that comes, I hate to say it, sometimes a lot of the quote enemies come from within your own family. I don't mean my family, my wife and kids, but my nuclear family. Oh, where, absolutely. Where, you know, there's yeah. a bit of ab emotional abuse and so on. And so, you know, I had a bit of a rough upbringing other than the, you know, the civil war where there was a bit of emotional and psychological abuse. And rather than it defeat me, it made me that much more resilient because I wanted to shove it up your ass so badly. I, 
And by the way, but that's, that's an enemy. So sometimes people are like, well, enemy is like enemy, like world and you're going to kill them. No, no, I have enemies. I have a list of enemies. I love more than you would ever know. Sometimes it was even a dad saying, we're not made to do anything in yeah. life. And I'm like, I'm not freaking buying that. Yeah. That's an enemy. I don't want to buy into that. We're, we're a special family. It's a complete, so enemy is not, uh, it's not linked to hate. Although that, uh, British diplomat does say that produces a lot, but, uh, you know, you look at some of the people, sometimes you don't know how people were offended very rarely. Like people still don't know till today. What happened with Hitler? People still don't know till today. You can do as much due diligence as you want. What happened there? Right. People still don't know till today. What really drives Trump at You're 75 years old. You've had a number one show for 15 years. You've been a billionaire. You've party with all these people. You've been with a bunch of women. You're married to a beautiful girl. You got, you know, good kids. You, you know everybody. What what are you pissed off about? Did Dad say something? Did Fred say something? Did Mom? We will never. Just so you know, we may never. We probably will never know. We will never know why that guy's got the fire he has at this age. We're never gonna know Hillary Clinton's fire. Why is she going around campaigning with her daughter Chelsea on Kim Kardashian's? Oh, what are boy. they doing? Oh boy! Yeah, I, I the, way, he, the point here's the point though. The point is. I can set aside my differences. Nancy Pelosi, 80 years old, to me is more presidential than Biden and Kamala Harris. And I don't like Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi goes to Armenia after they're being bombed by Azerbaijan. You go to Taiwan after China threatens you. What are you doing? There's a part. Why are you doing that at 80? Maybe she knows something deep down inside that somebody said your legacy, all this stuff. Maybe she's doing and you, we will never know what the reasoning for it is. Because if she didn't go to Armenia or Taiwan, you and I wouldn't say anything different. But there is something there. So it's not just, well, let me tell you, Hillary Clinton, she's a this. I will never, I, I can't stand her policies. I don't like the deceptive ways. Half the stories you hear about who she was, I do agree that, believe that she is who we think she is. But why is she still ambitious? Yeah, those things we will never know. Do you think that Trump will run again if you had to bet the house on one possibility or the other? <laughs> um, will he run again? Um, so Rudy and I are, I don't, I, yeah, I don't, I, it's going to come down to a few different things. If, if they go and pursue this indictment and they promote it nonstop, it's going to hurt momentum. Okay. Uh, when I started my own insurance company, I had a pending lawsuit for my former company. Okay. It's the only time I'd ever been sued in my life, but it was a pending lawsuit from them. And they have to do it because their number one guy leaves at the time. You know, the guy that's coming up leaves. So they have to make a statement. If you leave, we're going to do the same thing. I would do the same thing they did 10 out of 10 times. So nothing they did was malicious. You're supposed to do that. Okay. So I'm like, let's get the best lawyers. Let's get the best. This. Let's get, I'm going against a $400 billion company. You don't have that kind of money, Pat. Relax. So I get all these lawyers and we're meeting in Newport Beach and we're going up against these guys. So I go to three different insurance companies to get contracts. First insurance company. Yeah, absolutely. We're definitely interested in David. We've seen you. We've heard about you and blah, 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 blah. We want to be partners with you. Two weeks later, they do a background check. Next thing you know, no, we can't. Why not? You have a pending lawsuit. I go to the next carrier. Well, you know, of course, yeah, we'd love to have your business. Da, 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 da. Two weeks later, they go through the credit. You have a pending lawsuit. By the third carrier, I said, hmm. Whether they're right or not, the pending lawsuit is hurting me getting new relationships. So guess what? Go to the lawyers, call them, let's settle. Whether I'm right or wrong, no one gives a shit. I need those contracts. 
So the lawyers call, we settle, I cut a check. I call those three insurance companies and I got the contract because a pending lawsuit is gone. Moral of the story, whether it's right or wrong, it doesn't matter because it's about optics. Yeah. If these guys go and play that game, you have to know that if we heard Russia, Russia, Russia a million times, you're going to hear the word indictment probably a billion times over the next 18 months. Okay. And then the Republican base is going to sit there and say, here's, here's all the different people are going to say that are going to be part of DeSantis's camp. So think DeSantis, how you would market it if you're pro DeSantis, right? Here's what they would say. It's, it's very simple. It's one sentence. It's one sentence. Guys, for those of you that support Trump's policies, DeSantis is 99.9% all of Trump's policies without baggage. Exactly. Without the mean tweets, without the personality flaws, much younger. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that the the because Republicans are more logical. Democrats are known as being more emotional. So the Democrats vote emotionally. More Republicans vote logically. They're like, well, this just makes sense. Common sense, taxes for you know, it's more logical sale versus an emotional sale. They're gonna sit there and they're gonna say, logically, you're right. I like Trump's policies. I like what he did with China. I like what he did with tariffs. I like what he did with the border. I like what, yeah, you're right. You know what? As much as I like the fact that he was a fighter, I got to go with DeSantis. He's younger. He's a, it's a good sale. So that's the part where if you have two chief marketing officers that are debating to sell Trump as a product versus DeSantis as a product, I don't know. Now, listen, to learn, to, and by the way, if, you, if you've been noticing DeSantis lately, what he's done as well, this is very strict. It has to be. Look how he has brought out his trolling abilities the last 12 months. What's he doing? I think what he's doing is he's feeding to the MAGA crowd to say, I also know how to troll. Don't worry. You're going to like me as well. I will also be entertaining. He's a very, very astute, smart, intelligent, wise, creative guy, yet poised to, to not have to fight everybody. I think so. I don't know. You know. Uh, uh, you, you you never know what's going to happen with these political things, but that's my understanding of what's going to happen here. Two more questions, because I know we're up against a hard stop soon. Otherwise, I could talk to you for another six hours. Uh, Likewise. Thank you, sir. Number one, would Pat Bet David ever consider becoming a politician? Because he already has the massive height, because we know you're not going to become president <laughs> of the United States if you are Gad Saad's height. Uh, I don't care how good looking I am, how intelligent <laughs> I am. I'm too damn short, but you're not. So uh, any chance that you might be going to politics? I would tell you if I was born here, I would be the president of the United States, but I'm not born here. And I would make one hell of a president. So no, I'm not going to get into that space. But what I will do is I will support many. And we will create a um, a place where we will we will definitely bring a lot of eyeballs to the people and we'll, we'll work behind closed doors to do, to do our part as well. We'll be involved somehow, some way, but I wasn't born here. So, so that, you're going to be a kingmaker basically. That's what you're saying. That's going to be my, that's a very strength of mine. And that's that I, I do that naturally. So that comes to me very naturally. Okay. Last question. Not that you need my platform to promote anything of yours, but is if, if you'd like to use our, uh, you know, closing our conversation about any, exciting projects that you'd like to tell people about, take it away, Pat. Yeah, I will tell you. So one of the things that we worked on for a while that I think your audience will like is we just launched an app called Minect that we've been working on for 14 months, Minect. So here's a concept behind Minect. I've paid 
tens of millions of dollars in legal fees and accounting fees. And one of the most frustrating things with dealing with lawyers is you would have a seven minute call with a lawyer and then the lawyer bills you for 30 minutes. I'm like, dude, I didn't talk to you for 30 minutes. It was a seven minute call. Well, you know, it rolls up bullshit. Charge me for seven minutes divided by 600 bucks an hour. Charge me for that. No, well, that's not how it works. It rolls up. I'm like, you know what? What if there was an app where I can pay people by the minute, not by the hour? So I said, I'm going to create this app and this is what we're going to do. It's going to be like the Cameo, the OnlyFans, except for influencers and experts. So here's how it works. Say somebody wants to talk to you. Say somebody wants to talk to Tate, who's currently viral. Say somebody wants to talk to a Kevin Connolly or Chas Palminteri or whoever it may be, a bodybuilder or a doctor or a lawyer or somebody that's going to help you raise money. You simply go on Minect. You go and find the expert you want to talk to. You have one of two choices. Either you ask them a question. So the question is going to be 100 bucks or 200 bucks or 500 bucks, depending on who the influencer is. And they respond back at their time in a video or a text. Okay, so, hey, John, though, because nowadays you can send a thousand messages to an influencer or an expert on Instagram or LinkedIn. They're not going to respond back to you because their time is valuable. So if you do want people to get back to you, they will on minute. Or you can do a FaceTime with an influencer or an expert and pay them by the minute. This morning, I did two minutes that were 15 minutes each. Somebody about a couple minutes from me. And we got on there. My face is at the top. Their face is at the bottom. We had a 15-minute consulting call with them. Very easy. So uh, in the first week of launching it, which was nine days ago, we launched it. We got 25,000 people that downloaded the app. It's at 26,000 wow. people, a little over 25,000 people that have downloaded the app. And uh, it's it's done incredible to the point where yesterday we're having a meeting with the recruiting agency here that we have to hire five full-time engineers because of what's happened with this app. So Minect, M-I-N-N-E-C-T. Like, do you have a minute to connect? Yes. Let's Minect. Love it. App, connect, so. Oh, fantastic. Uh, yes. Add and another hundred million. Well. What's that? And you you got you to gotta get there as well because I'm sure a lot of people are always emailing you. So this is a chance now where they can actually pay to have a conversation with thank, you. And Thank you. Because believe yeah. me, one of the things that I get most angry about is the fact that people truly believe that somehow, because I, the moniker of I'm the professor of the people, anybody can contact me, but never yeah. expect to ever pay me, right? So so startups call me, other academics call me, fans want to speak to me, but somehow never pay me. So I appreciate that. So maybe we need to hook up on that. Yeah. That'd be wonderful. Pat, so unbelievable to talk to you. I look forward to hopefully seeing you soon again in Florida. Maybe we will move to Florida one day and get out of this godforsaken Quebec. But until then, keep destroying the world the way you are. Such a pleasure to talk to you. And I will talk to you soon, sir. Likewise. Appreciate you for having me. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Stay on the line. We'll say bye offline. Cheers. Hi, everybody. I hope that you enjoyed my chat with Patrick Bet David. He is certainly a great storyteller. In any case, if you'd like to support my work, you can do so in one of several ways. You can share my clips. You can subscribe to my YouTube channel. Subscribe to my podcast. Perhaps you can go to uh, the Apple podcast slash iTunes and provide a rating, hopefully a five-star rating. And of course, you can donate via one of several uh, platforms, be it my PayPal account, Patreon, or Subscribestar. You could also use the super thanks option on my YouTube channel. There you have it, folks. Thank you so much for your support. I'll look forward to bringing you many great guests in the near future. Cheers.